You're listening to GGR Pirate Radio. Don't be a juice bag. This is called Pirate Radio. You're listening to Mike on the Mic on GGR Pirate Radio. I'm full, and yet I know if I stop eating this, I'll regret it. It's four-leaf clover. Make a wish. Wish you weren't so f***ing awkward, bud. This is called Pirate Radio. And now, your host, Mike Luxford. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, my name is Mike Lunsford and this is Mike on the Mic. We have a very special episode for you guys today. In fact, I am right now in a Skype conversation with a guy who is running for the first congressional district as a Democrat. We're looking at November 3rd here for the election. It's a big, obviously everybody knows all about this because there's also a presidential election. Uh, but his name is Qasem Rashid. Awesome. Say hello to everybody. Mike, how are you? Hello, everyone. How are y'all doing? I'm good. I'm good. I wanted to, again, thank you for agreeing to do this with me. Um, of course. It's it's a crazy time right now. It, because especially with something like this, you would think, like, normally in situations like this, you would want to, like, maybe sit down with the person. You'd want to be able to see them face-to-face. But that's almost out the window now because of what's going on in our world. Um, that, that was kind of the first question I wanted to to ask you. But before we do that, I want you to I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself to to everybody, because the, the podcast that we do is not just uh, Virginia listeners. Um, we have I mean, we're all, all over all over the country. Lots of people listen. So for those who are not familiar with what's going on here uh, in uh, the old dominion, so to speak, um, kind of introduce yourself and tell everybody what you're all about. Sure. Well, thank you again, Mike, for uh, this conversation and this platform. Um, you know, my background is uh, I'm a human rights lawyer. I've worked in human rights law for the last decade plus, uh, focusing on women's rights, racial justice, um, children from marginalized communities, international religious freedom. Um, and a lot of that is driven from uh, my childhood. Uh, I'm an immigrant to this country. Uh, we came here when I was about four years old. Uh, we left a country that persecutes us for our faith to pursue this a uh, promise of equal justice in our constitution. And, and I say it that way because I think we can all agree we haven't quite made it yet. Um, but, uh, you know, the other thing that is really key about our constitution is this promise of forming a more perfect union. And, you know, growing up, our parents really infused this element of service to humanity as our main, uh, as our North Star, so to speak. And um, throughout my childhood, as I got older, really uh, was fortunate to have amazing teachers, including my parents, uh, continue to uh, drive that narrative forward. And that's really where my focus has been uh, my entire life. Uh, becoming a human rights lawyer was, for me, the next step in increasing my you know, ability to serve those around me. And now running for office is really about taking that advocacy for the last you know, 10, 15 years and transforming it into better policy, into uh, meaningful changes to our economic system so that we can have more people uh, in the middle class and be successful and, and financially secure, have a, have a rebuilt criminal justice system that works in rehabilitation as opposed to retribution and revenge, uh, expand healthcare access, all these really important policy changes that we need to make. And um, we're grateful that we're running this campaign, focus on the people, our slogan is compassion through action. The basic premise is that if you have compassion and love for your fellow uh, to have uh, you need to take the action to exemplify that, and uh, and to that end, we've run a really powerful, really strong, unifying campaign with a positive message, and uh, and here we are in the final final few weeks before election day, trying to make history. Well, and that was one of the things that I wanted to bring up immediately too, and it was one of the things that really kind of um, drew me to your campaign to begin with. Is so often with what's going on in these elections, it's a it's a contest of who can talk smack about the other guy more and make the other person look bad. And that's that's not really what you've done. The only things that I've seen thus far from your end has been 
this is what this person said about me or about this, and here's how it was wrong. Here's how it's not accurate. Here's how it's not true. And it's been this fight for the truth the entire time. Has that been difficult for you where you're really – oftentimes it seems like you don't get to talk about the issues, the actual things that are – pertinent for people that live in this area that live in this region of Virginia most of the time you're just trying to play like hey this guy what, what this guy just said is not the truth let me show you how it's not the truth let me prove this to you and then it, it just it distracts from the actual message has that been a difficult battle for you well I would I would present it a, a, a little bit different vantage point in that um, you're right uh, completely right that his whole campaign has been focused on, you know, attacking me for my faith, um, tying me to terrorist organizations, just nonsensical stuff, especially considering uh, just last year I was in federal court testifying against a man who wanted to kill me for my faith. And so for a sitting congressman to engage in the same kind of uh, really dangerous rhetoric uh, to demonize me is, uh, is unbecoming. And I think it's beneath the dignity of a public servant, but of anyone dedicated towards compassion and unity. Um, now, that's been his agenda. That's been his initiative. And, you know, he's doing that for obvious reasons. Uh, I think the two obvious reasons that come to mind are, one, um, his record isn't one that he can run on. He hasn't passed a single bill on broadband in 13 years in office. He hasn't passed a single bill on health care. In fact, he's voted to repeal the ACA even during the pandemic. He's got a 10 percent uh, score from the NAACP, a 3 percent environmental justice score. So, you, you know, the first point is that he has no actual record to run on. And so the best he can hope for is to demonize me and say, hey, you know, I may be terrible, but that guy's worse, which <laughs> I'm sorry, that's not really a great campaign slogan, but that's what he's he's tying his ship to. Um, and the second reason is I think he's seeing the polling. Uh, uh, he, he knows that it's a close race and he knows that he's in trouble. And uh, he knows that he needs to do something drastic because he has a president who is undermining his own success by countering mail-in ballot voting and absentee ballot voting, which we know is safe and secure. And so for us, um, you know, while I have at some points addressed uh, his accusations, I, I've actually done it in a, what I think is a humorous way. I, I've just taken his flat out, you know, you know he, he, for example, he took a Bernie logo and photoshopped it, a really bad photoshop, might I add. Like, I yeah, mean, I noticed that too, yeah. My 11-year-old could have done a better job than that. He photoshopped it onto my face mask and said, look at this guy, the Bernie supporter. Uh, I mean, first of all, Bernie Sanders is the uh, most favorable senator in America right now. Like, no, like nobody is more beloved than Bernie Sanders. So I'm not sure why you think that's a good selling point. But second of all, it just kind of speaks to how really sad your campaign is, that this is your best bet. And so I just tweeted out the whole thing. I'm like, look, guys, this is what he's doing. And this is why we need to have a sense of integrity and decency uh, join our campaign. And we got you know phenomenal support from that. But we've been pushing forward the narrative. We've rolled out some really bold proposals on making broadband a utility on a compassion for veterans program that works with, uh, you know, uh, service members reacclimating to civilian life and helping them get financial security, educational security and mental health security. Um, you know, a bold climate justice proposal is why we've been endorsed by every major climate justice organization out there. Um, and, and, you know, these are the issues that we're continuing to drive forward. Just last night, I, I had the privilege of meeting with about 15 or 16 African-American pastors and community leaders to talk about these issues of economic justice and health care and education. And yes, criminal justice reform as well. And, and it was funny because one of them said to me afterwards, one of the pastors said to me afterwards that I was waiting to see in what order you would talk about things. Because you have these Republican politicians come in and talk to us. The only thing they'll ever talk about is criminal justice reform. As if they look at us as criminals and say, don't worry, I know you guys aren't the real criminals and we'll figure something out. Um, and then I realize that we're human beings and that we've been impacted by, the, by this virus and by the economic downturn and by healthcare failures and by education access and, and the, the lack of, you know, uh, the pharmacies and, and banks and we have food deserts. And so the fact that you talked about all those things and then as one of your things you talked about criminal justice reform shows us that you really do get it. You really do understand what uh, what we need uh, accomplished. So, you know, he can keep talking about us in a really dangerous and disparaging way. We're going to keep leading with compassion and talk about the issues that matter to the folks. And, uh, and that's why we're going to win this thing. Yeah, and that's honestly in in the climate that we're in right now. That's incredibly admirable because it's so hypercharged right now with with 
I mean, everybody is, it, it seems like on edge because it's, it's like the perfect storm. There's so much going on right now between um, the pandemic, between people being quarantined, between people being out of work, between um, without trying to, well, no, at this point, I'm, I'll name names. Like our president is literally lighting fires on social media, like incensing people, like starting fights in the debates. He's doing the same thing. It makes it a very contentious time and that you're trying to essentially put these fires out is, is is admirable. And I wanted to at least state that up front, that I really appreciate that that's the way you're going. And I think a lot of people do. A lot of people are tired of it. A lot of people are tired of always being angry. And hope and compassion are not bad things. And it, it seems like it gets painted that they are. Um, yeah, with well that, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was, was going to uh, well said, and, and, and the consistent messaging we've been getting from Republicans who are supporting us is that um, <laughs> one, one young woman uh, reached out to me and said, look, there's actually a lot of your policies I still disagree with, but I, I really admire the way you approach things with compassion and by bringing people together at the table. And you're not, you're not only speaking to Democrats, you're speaking to all that office, so you have my vote. And, uh, and you know, it's no magic trick. It's no, you know, What's the poll telling you? It's treating people with basic decency. And and I've said it before, I would rather lose but keep my integrity than win by demonizing somebody with falsehood and slander. Um, that, that's just not the politics that I'm ever going to be about. No, 100%. Um, the, this podcast, before I – this is that you're actually the, now the, the third local politician that I've had on. I had um, – a few years ago, I did an interview with uh, Danica Roem. Um, just earlier this year, I did one with uh, Joshua Cole. Right. And if you had looked at this podcast before that, it was like, hey, let's talk about crazy conspiracy theories. Let's talk about video games. Let's talk about these other things. But this podcast has been an extension of, of myself where I'm getting involved in these things. I'm getting interested in these things. And one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to thank you because oftentimes when the – everyday person like myself decides that they want to start getting involved in political um, campaigns or, or what's going on in the world, they'll reach out to their representatives or the people running for office and they get no response. Uh, for instance, um, I tried not to name him, but at this point I'm going to. Rob Whitman is currently the congressman for, for my area and I reached out to him after uh, President Trump decided that it was a good idea to start shutting down the post office, which is still baffling at this point. And I got zero response, not even like a form letter, no like automatic response, nothing. I reached out to him three different times and got nothing. And I reached out to you um, via Facebook and your Facebook, like it automatically responds, hey, we'll get back in touch with you. And then I didn't hear back. And I reached out one more time saying like, hey, I never heard back from you, what's the deal? The fact that you personally responded but then apologized and was like, hey, let me get your phone number. Let me call you. Like that spoke volumes to me. The fact that you actually care about one individual person in your area. And that's that's rare. You don't see that very often. And this has been one of the things that in this journey that I've been taking and, and expanding what I talk about has been really interesting is I'm finding that there are politicians that are interested in talking to the regular person. And a lot of people are jaded and a lot of people are tired of it and they paint all politicians in the same category of, oh, they don't care about us. They only care about money. They only care about money. Um, all of that that I just said to ask you this question, has that been something that you've had to overcome where people are just like, this guy's going to say whatever he needs to say to get elected and not take you at face value? Has that been difficult for you to be genuine and for people to actually believe that you're genuine? Well, it's never been difficult for me to be genuine uh, because I, I firmly believe that uh, life is more than about politics. Uh, life is more than about one election. Um, it's more than about you know convincing that one person to vote to, to vote for you. I, I don't view these um, interactions, Mike, as transactional. I view these as a as a long term relationship, and any healthy relationship takes time to build trust. And so if the first interaction I have with someone is negative because they're just so jaded by politicians, I don't blame them. I say, good on you for, for being 
cautious and and recognizing that you're not going to tolerate people being insincere with you. Good on you for making people earn your trust. I think that's the way it needs to be necessarily. Um, so for me, you know, um, even with our first interaction when we didn't respond in time, um, you know, my my message to our team has been that we're going to be unassailable. And what that means is that we're going to get it right the first time. And if we go, don't get it right, then we are going to apologize and make it right. Um, because while while we want to get it right the first time, we're human beings and, and that's not always going to happen. And there's times where we, we miss a message or an email. Uh, we're human, but we're going to follow up and we're going to make sure that things get done right. And then as far as, you know, folks who are uh, questioning my sincerity, um, again, I tell them I don't I don't blame you uh, for to, to question um, a politician's sincerity because politicians have lied so many times over and over again. And we need to vet people uh, to the you know highest degree possible. Uh, and what I share with these folks is to, you know, when I try to build trust is to say, look, at the end of the day, a tiger can't change his stripes. Um, the things I'm advocating for now, the things that I'm fighting for now, uh, you can look at my record from five years ago, 10 years ago, and the work that I've done in the community with elected officials across the political spectrum with Republicans and Democrats and see that I've been consistent in, in my positions, in my messaging. And if I change my position, then I acknowledge that I was wrong. And uh, I shared the, the logical and the scientific and the factual reasons why I changed my position. It wasn't due to political expediency, but based on what the, what, what the evidence tells us. And I think that's what you want in a public servant, someone who is gonna be a person of conviction uh, be consistent, but then also be willing to change when there is better information available and there's when there's new evidence available. And and that's the best I can offer folks that look at the record I've done for the last 10, 12 years as a human rights lawyer. If I'm so fortunate to be elected, that's the same advocacy and consistency that I'm going to push forward. And it'll be done with compassion, with justice, by building a longer table, not by building some uh, higher wall. You'd brought up something that I never really thought of as an issue. And maybe it's my own insulated view because it hasn't be, been an issue for me, which, I mean, makes me feel a little privileged in this particular aspect. But broadband, you brought that up. And I know it's now be, I, I've heard other groups, I've heard other politicians bring this up. Um, is it because, I mean, for the most part, I've never really lived in the country, so to speak. Like, I've always been like suburbs for the most part, like I grew up in the DC area. Um, now down here in Fredericksburg, is this, give me a little background on this. Is this a huge thing where people just don't have internet access, um, beyond the, the suburbs more or less? Is that, is that why this is such a big thing? I mean, I'm assuming that's what it is, that there's probably tons of people out there who just don't have reliable internet access. Mike, it's devastating. It's absolutely uh, a shame that in 2020 in the wealthiest country in the world, um, that has the most advanced technology. According to Microsoft, half of the country doesn't have broadband internet access. Wow. And, and there are parts of our own district where there's simply nothing available, no signal, nothing available. And and the impact that it's had has been absolutely devastating to our communities. Right now, even in this pandemic, children who are telelearning can't learn. Uh, they have no access. Even without this pandemic, um, parents are taking their children to uh, McDonald's parking lots to get their Wi-Fi because they need to get homework done. Um, uh, our small businesses can't thrive. Imagine, Mike, trying to run a small business in a rural part of the district and you can't even get online. How are you going to sell your product? How are you going to sell your services? Um, telehealth. Think about if you if you are an, a senior citizen or somebody who has uh, you know a disability and you can't move around as easy. Um, telehealth has been a godsend for so many people to get uh, medical care um, while still at home, but. Now you can't because you can't get basic online access. If you're a medical center that wants to set up shop in a rural part of the district, but you can't get online, how are you supposed to provide medical care? Our farmers can't get the basic data they need for effective planting cycles. So it has absolutely kept our rural uh, neighbors stuck in the 20th century, and it is simply unfair to them. Uh, and again, my opponent has been in office 13 years. Mike, can you guess how many bills he's passed on broadband in 13 years in office? I'm going to say it's probably close to zero. It's exactly zero. <laughs> and and now even now he has the audacity to say that in the next, you know, within the next decade we'll be able to get it done. 
Um, you know, again, his basic pitch is that I failed the first six times you elected me, but the seventh or eighth or ninth or tenth time is a charm, I promise. <laughs> Fool you once, shame on you. Fool you exactly. twice, shame on you. Fool you six times, yeah, give me one more shot. No, that's exactly. not going to work. And, yeah. and, you know, and look, it's, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why he's failed at this. He's taken nearly $100,000 of big corporate money from, from big telecom. And, and they're not incentivized to build out broadband in rural America because it doesn't make them any money. That's just the bottom line. It does not make them money. Uh, this is one, why we don't take any corporate PAC money, because we want to be accountable to the people. But two, what's the solution? And, you know, my whole focus on everything that I advocate for is that the solution has to be built on a proven model. I don't want some hypothetical theory mumbo jumbo. I want you to show me that the solution will work. And what we know is a solution that works for broadband is to treat broadband like a utility. Um, just like we did with the Rural Electrification Act of 1936, if we make broadband a utility like water and electricity, then it is accessible. Nearly a thousand municipalities around the country have already done this. And one of the best examples I can think of is uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And what they did a decade ago was implement broadband as a utility. In the last decade, it's created over 5,000 jobs just from the utility. It has attracted major employers like Volkswagen, which has been a massive boost to the economy with high-paying jobs. And, and you know what their speeds are, Mike? One gigabyte per second speeds. Dude, that's insane. It's mind-boggling. And right now we're talking about, yeah, in the next decade, maybe we can get you know, three megabyte uh, upload, 25 megabyte download. It's, it's an insult to say that. Oh, we yeah. Can... Especially yeah. because, I mean, this is it, – it was always baffling to me traveling, um, growing up in the D.C. area. And it doesn't take you long in, in any direction. It, let, let's say, for instance, we go down the corridor where where this district is. You go from Fredericksburg, which has you know reasonably decent internet, right? Like as far as broadband goes. But yes. it doesn't take you long to go down the northern neck to get to the point where there's nothing. Same thing yep. with cell signal. It, it's but like you're talking about like metropolitan areas, and then you only have to drive 30 minutes one direction, and you're in the country, and like. That shouldn't be a bad thing when it comes to utilities. I'm I'm 100% in agreement with you on this one. Like, this shouldn't be. It it frustrates me that so oftentimes, if you say that, like, well, I tend to lean Democrat, or you know, I tend to be as progressive uh, progressive when it comes to these sorts of things, that automatically people say, oh, well, you're against capitalism. Well, not necessarily, but when it fails us so often, and it's all about greed and not about helping people, there needs to be changes made, and. you know, that's my concern with this. Go on ahead. this I'm sorry. Broadband issue, on this broadband issue, I think that's the key point that we want to get across. That if you truly do care about capitalism, then you want to have broadband as a utility. Uh, look, we have to remember why, you know, people forget why water was made a utility. It was because our coal miners, who were at the time the core of our energy sector, weren't able to live because they couldn't get basic water access. So we and, and no company was going to build it out. And so we decided as a as a as a country. Okay, water is a basic right to live. We need to build out water as a utility. And we did. Electricity, same thing. Uh, As we're coming out of the Great Depression, we realized that if we're going to be able to grow our economy and stimulate our economy, people need electricity. And no company was willing to do it because they didn't make the money. And so we built out electricity as a utility. And think about how many businesses now developed and thrived and grew because now around the country you had electricity. Same with broadband internet. You know, maybe in 1990, Mike, you could tell me broadband is a luxury. It's not really a necessity. But this is 2020. Yeah. We can't let people, we can't force people to live in 1990 but play by 2020 rules. We need to give them access to start their small businesses, to, to incentivize major to be able to move to rural parts of the country because they will know that they have the infrastructure there to still make their product and be successful. So if you, and, and, and here's the best part about this. Again, the studies show that when you build out broadband in rural parts of the district, you see an 8% economic boost. 8%. That's mind-blowing, especially considering that our country typically gets 2 to 3% per year. You're talking nearly triple the economic boost simply by building out broadband internet. The, the U.S. Department of Agriculture did a study last year in 2019 that said that building out broadband in rural communities across the country would result in a $65 billion economic boost to our economy. That is what capitalism should be, giving people a fair shake, giving them a level playing field, and then letting the beauty of innovation and entrepreneurialism and small business thrive and develop. We can't do any of that if we're denying them the basic tools to succeed. 
My, my opponent wants to continue to sink hundreds of billions of dollars into billionaire corporations in hopes that they do the right thing. I think that's silly. We should take those tax dollars and invest them directly into municipalities so people can get broadband internet. Uh, our rural communities can thrive and have meaningful access to the future. And that's, yeah, 100%. I'm, I'm, I'm completely with you on that. And I wanted to kind of dovetail off of that for a second because I wanted to uh, talk about um, healthcare for just a quick second and, and tell me if this theory that I have is even like close to reality. Sure. So often that we, we talk about the idea of universal healthcare. I mean, I'm, I personally think it would be a, a wonderful thing because it, it sickens me to, to think that there are people who can't get health care because they don't have money. And it, it defeats the whole purpose of one of the founding principles of this country when we decided to become independent, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Both life and happiness are, are kind of suppressed when you can't afford to pay for your own health. When it comes to like an economic boost, I've I've always thought that like okay, let's just say for instance we did have um, universal healthcare. Everybody in this country automatically has healthcare. It's just part of your tax plan, right? That automatically would help the economy. And the reason why is because people wouldn't be stuck in jobs that they hate just because it has healthcare. You could actually do the things that you enjoy. People yep. who actually wanted to be a cook could be a cook and not have to say, oh well, I can't do it because it doesn't pay me enough because um, I have to have healthcare. Like. Is that a reasonable like thought process that like this is something that would actually really help overall if we had universal healthcare? It, we would see a huge boost to the economy because people would be willing to work in other sectors that they maybe had to avoid because of those lack of benefits. That's just, and I mean you're on the right track, Mike. And that's just one shade of it. The, you know, the, beyond that, you have to think about the the harm reduction done as well. Right now, in the United States. Uh, due to a lack of healthcare, 70,000 people a year die simply because they can't get basic healthcare access. 70,000. Um, beyond that, uh, 550,000 Americans a year have to file for, for medical bankruptcy. That's more than one every minute of every hour of every day of the year. Yeah. People are filing for, I mean, so a half million plus per year are filing for medical bankruptcy, devastating people's lives, their economic livelihood and hurting our middle class and, and disproportionately low income and black and brown communities because they're the ones who disproportionately don't have access to healthcare. Um, and you're right, with universal healthcare, making sure that our taxes pay for our healthcare would uh, enable us to have much more individual liberty, liberty and freedom. We can move around from company to company if we want to. We could start your own small business. You could, uh, you could take time off and use your savings to write that great American novel while ensuring <laughs> that you're not gonna die from a lack of healthcare. Um, all these things that we are denying ourselves access to, and again, you know, you talk about proven models, those states that expanded Medicaid, like Virginia expanded Medicaid a couple years ago, now 400,000 more Virginians have access to healthcare, um, have seen a drop in uh, infant mortality, a drop in maternal mortality, and a rise in life expectancy. So we know this works. It's not a question of of whether or not it's a healthy thing to do. It's absolutely a healthy thing to do, economically, morally, health-wise. It's a question of, are we going to um, continue to subsidize billion-dollar corporations with tax dollars, or are we gonna use those tax dollars to actually provide healthcare for the American people? You know, Last I checked, Mike, and correct me if I'm wrong, the Constitution says we the people of the United States, not we the corporations. 100%. And uh, it's, it's time we lived up to those values. I um I had a, a quick story for you with this, and it, it it's it does turn into a question. I promise. Um, I have a um I have a cousin who is staunchly Republican, very conservative. Um, and no, I'm not doing Medicare for all. I'm not doing universal health care because why should I have to pay for other people's problems? It's socialism. The you know, the same tired sure. things you hear all the time. The same rhetoric. And this cousin ended up having a a hip problem. He actually takes care of an elderly uh, relative, and he has a hip problem from pre uh, pre-existing condition. He was in a um, he was riding a bike and he was hit by a car years ago, and the hip condition has finally gotten to the point where it deteriorated. And either he doesn't have the health insurance, or he can't afford the procedure because they're treating it as a pre-existing condition. And what ended up happening was is other cousins ended up putting a GoFundMe together for him to raise the money, an $80,000 procedure to raise the money for him. Oh. And so many of them saw it as, oh. as like, look at what we're doing. This is this great thing that we're doing. And all it did was just, it broke my heart because this person is so convinced that, that 
oh, I can't – the government shouldn't be doing this. The government shouldn't be doing this. It's socialism. It's socialism. And we just have to watch as this person doesn't get the care that they need. And it just – it broke my heart. And like I know so often the other side thinks that like people who tend to be blue or democratic um, are like – see like pointing a finger at them and mocking them and like using it as like some sort of victory it's not like is that something that's difficult for you to overcome trying to explain that hey this isn't me trying to say you're wrong this is me trying to say i want to help you we all should be able to help each other is that is that because this area is very it's a difficult area to come to come across a lot of people are very conservative in yeah. this region, and, and that's why, and that's why I make sure that when I speak about you know universal health care, I, I point to the facts that um, it actually does provide more individual liberty and freedom. It does provide more safety and security. It is a better use of the money that you're already spending. Um, you know, my opponent uh, often cites a Koch brothers study. Uh, which is a, a conservative right-leaning study that said that universal health care will cost about $32 trillion over the next 10 years. And he uses it as a slam on me. And I chuckle because not only do I agree that, yes, it will cost $32 trillion, but he leaves out the second half of the study, which says that the current model, which only covers about 85% of Americans, which has half a million bankruptcies a year, which 70,000 a year die due to lack of health care, the current model is going to cost about 34 to 36 trillion over the next 10 years. So, you know, it doesn't take a, a you know, a genius to figure out that uh, 100% coverage without any co-pays or deductibles um, that costs less money is better than uh, partial coverage that costs more money. So, you know, when, when we, when we had that conversation with our conservative friends and I, and I really kind of share just the data and the facts in front of them, um, you know, just the other night, I was speaking with a gentleman who was the former uh, chair of the Republican Party of Pennsylvania, and we talked about universal health care. And at the end of it, he goes, I wish I could give you a hug, you know, but for COVID. But I, I never had it presented to me in that way. So um, I, I really emphasize that even this election, all these issues that I disagree with my opponent about, they really aren't Republican versus Democrat issues. They are Who's fighting for working families the way we are and who is funded by corporations and fighting for corporations the way he is? That's really what it comes down to. Yeah. And and it's and, and the reason why I said it's such a shame that your your friend had to have or your, your I think you said your cousin had to have uh, a, a GoFundMe. Um, I, you know, I'm glad it was successful, but we can't live by GoFundMes for our health care. I mean, this is like the dystopian future novel that Stephen King might have thought about in 1970, right? Right. It's, I mean, that's that's the worst part about it is is he needed to raise eighty thousand dollars and he only made about a tenth of it and it was that made it even worse was that like it, it didn't even come close and you're you're right it is it is a dystopian take you know uh, uh, every man for themselves type of mindset and it's it just it it makes me sad to think that that so many people have been convinced that that's the way that's the right thing to do they think that it is a sin to take help from the government that it would it's better it's more noble to ask friends for for scraps and and i just i i can't i can't agree with that i i don't i i can't like morally i it, it sickens me to think that this sort of thing happens and people are gladly accepting it well this is my fate it shouldn't be yeah i i, I agree and, and i think that's where um recognizing that we have to create an economy that truly works for every single person is so critical. We often hear about, you know, socialism is a evil redistribution of wealth and we can't have any of it. And I'm like, good, I, I agree. I'm not a socialist. I, I, I certainly agree that socialism is not the answer. Um, but to quote Dr. King, um, in this country, we have socialism for the wealthy and rugged individualism for the poor. Uh, a recent study just came out by the Rand Corporation that uh, showed that since 1975, there has been a, a transfer of wealth, a redistribution of wealth from the bottom 90% of Americans to the top 1% of Americans to the tune of $50 trillion, not million, not billion, $50 trillion redistributed from the bottom 90% to the top 1%. And, and they tell us that, well, we can't afford health care because it costs too much or that we can't afford four-year college, public college because it costs too much or we can't afford, you know, 
reasonable cost of living or, or a living wage because it costs too much. It costs too much to whom? It, it costs too much to the billionaires who aren't content with having a billion dollars, and so they need $5 billion. Um, it costs too much to the corporations who aren't content with $20 billion profits a year, so they need $30 billion profits a year. And those profits are not passed down to the ordinary working families. And the evidence of that is the massive divide and, uh, in wealth and income inequality between the haves and the have-nots. We have the worst wealth and income inequality in the developed world. We have the worst wealth and income inequality in uh, U.S. history, worse now than after the Great Depression. And uh, if you look at how corporate profits have increased while the, the minimum wage has stayed stagnant, if the minimum wage increased from 1975 to now the way corporate profits have increased at the same proportion, the minimum wage right now, Mike, would be between $25 and $30 an hour. Yeah. And it is an absolute shame that uh, the, the those in power have convinced the American people, Republicans and Democrats alike, that uh, they don't deserve a living wage, that they don't deserve access to basic health care, that if they get cancer, tough luck, figure it out. Uh, it's beyond cruelty. And that's why I emphasize this is not a Republican versus Democrat thing to me anymore. This is really about fighting for working families, fighting for small businesses, fighting for our military, for our veterans. Uh, the fact that one in five military families in Virginia are on food stamps is a disgrace. And it's a reflection of those in power prioritizing things that don't actually support our service members, yeah. uh, don't actually support the needs of our military families. And so so that's where I'm focused on. And that's why, you know, to go back to your earlier point, I don't really worry about uh, responding with nastiness and vitriol to the, to the nastiness that I'm getting. Because this is not about me. This is not about defending my ego or my honor. This is about protecting our working families who are working their hands to the bone and living in poverty because those in office want to buy themselves pharmaceutical stock and COVID-19 treatment like my opponent did rather than warn us that this pandemic is on its way. That is what I find immoral and objectionable. And that's why we need to elect new leadership. A hundred percent. I'm, I'm, I'm on board with, with what you're saying. Um, one of the things I did is I, I shared on social media that I was going to be interviewing you, and I asked my friends on, on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, if they had any questions for you, and I actually got some questions. So I wanted to ask you those. Um, this is from actually somebody that um, doesn't even – not even in your, your area. Um, he's actually from, uh, from Pittsburgh, but he was uh, – he read over some of your platforms and was curious – for those people completely disengaged from the political process, why should they be enthused or hopeful? Because this election is a referendum on the kind of nation that we want. Uh, we have gotten to this point due to generational injustices. It didn't happen overnight, and it's not going to be a Thanos snap of the finger uh, <laughs> with a reverse Infinity Stone impact to solve these problems. It will take time, and I have immense hope in our young people who are, um, who are, I mean, they're our nation's future, not just from a, a you know, a literal perspective, but from an ideological perspective as well. And, and what I can share is only what I've done. And, uh, and, and that is to be somebody who works across a political spectrum to bring about meaningful and consequential change. Um, if we aren't successful in this election, on this referendum, then we truly will be entering a point of no return. Uh, but right now, we still have an opportunity to uh, band together, remember that we are Americans, we are united on these causes of equal justice, of equal access, and hold politicians accountable. There was a tweet going viral the other day that really irked me. It said, uh, vote for Joe Biden because um, uh, that way you can go back to reading at night instead of doom scrolling. And look, I, I like Joe Biden. Uh, I support his candidacy and his campaign. But if you think for a moment that I'm not hold Joe Biden accountable after he's elected, then you're out of your mind. Um, we need to be able to be in the faces of every single elected official, in their inboxes, in their offices, demanding accountability, obviously doing it with civility and, and, and with sincerity. But we need to be uh, in uh, their inboxes every single day demanding justice, demanding progress, demanding that they fulfill what they said they were going to do. Um, so to, your, to the, your colleague in Pittsburgh who asked that question, I'm so glad they asked that question because I cannot blame them for being disenfranchised and for being uh, ticked off at just the complete failures. I would just ask them to channel that rage 
into uh, uh, an, uh, an approach of demanding accountability so that we can build a better future for not only ourselves, but, but for the next generation as well. Yeah, um, totally with you on that one too. Um, another question from actually somebody that works on the, uh, on the website with me. Uh, as a Muslim American, how difficult has it been overcoming the stereotype and prejudices that many in this area harbor? You know, I got to tell you, the folks in this area have been extraordinarily compassionate and kind with me. Um, you, you know, conservatives, progressives alike. Um, of course, there's been, you know, some instances of racism and, and nastiness. There was one gentleman who sent me some really nasty Islamophobic vitriol. And um, I, uh, I looked at his account and saw that he had a massive medical debt and a GoFundMe. So we helped him. You Thank know. you for bringing that up, because that was like... If you know how like uh, with with like certain TV shows, there'll be like one episode you watch and you're like, OK, now I'm a fan. That was that was my moment with you, that you saw all this horrible stuff that this guy sent to you. And then you looked him up and you were like, this guy needs help. Like that was that was fantastic. So I'm so glad you brought that up. Well, thank you. I mean, and and, and that for me is is I think what compassion through action means. Right. That's what service to humanity means that you don't really worry about whether the person is nice to you or supports you. You see a person who's being denied basic access, equal justice, and you do your best to support them with, with justice and compassion. And so, um, and so I share that because, you know, while that was a really, uh, it, was, it was certainly hurtful to receive his nastiness, um, the people of the first district have been extraordinarily kind and compassionate. The, the, it, to, be, to be perfectly honest and candid, the most uh, vicious anti-Muslim rhetoric and most dangerous anti-Muslim rhetoric I've received has been from none other than my, my, my opponent, um, which is a shame because yeah. you would think that he would lead by example um, and lead with compassion. But unfortunately, he's chosen a very different and very dangerous path. But, uh, but that said, um, you know, I, and I really emphasize this, folks across the political spectrum have reached out to me, have been thoughtful, have been kind and compassionate. And, and I think it's because folks here in the first district, they, they, they have two really unique qualities that I really admire. One is they recognize the history of Virginia as the birthplace of religious freedom in the Western hemisphere. Um, when you look at the writings of you know, uh, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, and they explicitly talk about uh, the respect that they had for Muslims and the Prophet Muhammad and the Quran, Thomas Jefferson owned the Quran. Um, uh, and, and then you look at the people of, of, of early Virginia. I was reading a, uh, a resolution passed by the people of Chesterfield County to the Virginia legislature, um, uh, calling upon them to reject calls to make this a theocracy and to make it a nation that can include Christians and Jews and Gentiles and Mohammedans, which is what they would call you know, Muslims at the time. Yeah. And this was back in the, in the, in the 1700s, they were making this call. And, and so that's the one quality of, of Virginians that I think is really unique, that they recognize that our history is ingrained in religious freedom and religious respect. And they see my work as well as somebody who's, who's dedicated my life to fighting for persecuted Christians and Jews and atheists, and they respect that. Um, but the second quality is, uh, you know, I, I think Virginians in general um, recognize that uh, we have to be a united front as we move forward. Um, they, they see more than anyone, maybe because of the history of the Civil War, um, uh, that could be it, uh, just, you know, maybe because of so many, um, you know, uh, uh, notable national leaders have come from this Commonwealth. Um, they recognize that our strength is in our unity and they resist these urges to demonize and condemn people. Um, and that's why I think you've seen Virginia become such a, a great place to live, such a prosperous place from an economic standpoint, um, and from a religious tolerance standpoint. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, with the exception of with the notable exception of my opponent, who is doubling down on anti-Muslim bigotry, uh, the people of the first district have been nothing short of wonderful. And I'm deeply grateful for their love and compassion. That's that's awesome to hear, though, that that it has been pretty welcoming. And yeah. we were talking the last question was about hope. That gives me hope that like this area is willing to see past these weird prejudices that try to get spread by the media. And, and I'm talking specifically about the, uh, media outlets like Fox News, where they want you to be 
afraid. They want you to be fearful. They want you to th- think that anybody who's different is bad. And that's, it, it's awesome that people are seeing through that. And that's, that's encouraging. It really is. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just the truth. And it's, it's why I think at our campaign events that we're holding publicly, you know, the socially distant face required campaign events, we are getting folks across the political spectrum showing up. And I think it's because they feel welcomed and they know that by coming up and asking tough questions or taboo questions, um, they're not going to be demonized. They're going to be welcomed and, uh, and included in the conversation. And I've, and I've said this uh, many, many times that um, I am not running to be the representative for Democrats. Um, I'm running as a Democrat to be the representative for all people. And that necessarily requires me. It, it obliges me. Uh, to um, listen to and collaborate with folks from across the political spectrum because uh, that's what a public servant needs to do if they want to be honest about representing the people to serve. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the last one of these questions, and I just want to ask you like some non-political stuff because I feel like I've been grilling you this whole time. So, <laughs> sure. um, uh, Actually, this uh, came on Twitter. Do you have any post-win trepidations? So, like, for instance, are there any concerns that there would be unwillingness to compromise from across the aisle, that the media is going to try to smear you um, because of your progressive legislation plans? You know, I, I'm i not worried about things that are out of my control. Um, I am focused on being present for my constituents. I've signed the town hall pledge, which means that I will – I have promised to hold at least one public and accessible town hall to uh, uh, for every quarter that I'm in office. So at least eight public town halls. My opponent hasn't held a town hall since March of 2019. Um, so one town hall since March of 2019. I, actually, I take that back. I think he held three back-to-back ones in March, and then since then hasn't held anything at all. Um, so, so, so one, I'm going to be focused on making sure my constituents know who I am, making sure I understand what they need and fighting for those things. Two, you know, on this thing about, you know, progressive versus conservative, um, I, I, I would very respectfully submit that the positions that I'm holding are bipartisan positions, regardless of whether you're a progressive or, or a conservative. You know, broadband as a utility, um, our polling shows that over 70 percent of people in the first district want to have broadband as a utility. Um, Environmental justice, you know, Republicans and Democrats alike, they are conservationists. They want clean air and food and water. My opponent has a 3% environmental scorecard. Uh, we have been endorsed by every major climate justice organization out there, you know, Sierra Club and, and Sunrise Movement included. Um, criminal justice reform. My opponent has voted against every meaningful criminal justice that piece of legislation except the First Step Act, which I uh, commend him on and commend the president on passing. Um, I've worked in criminal justice reform for a decade and, and have meaningful policies that have bipartisan support. Um, even for, even things like, you know, police reform. I mean, this guy has actually voted to defund the police and said nothing when police pay was cut. I went against my own party to condemn the cutting of police pay and demanded that we need to get them the resources they need and expand resources to ensure we have mental health professionals and addiction professionals. So, you know, the, the, the views that I support are bipartisan views that people on both sides of the aisle are on board with, and they're formed by speaking with folks across the political spectrum. So if, if media wants to try to demonize me, I'm not going to worry about that. What I'm going to worry about is making sure that I continue to stay in touch with and attuned with the needs of the people of the first district. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Control what you can control. You know, um, I'm trying to. My, my dad used to tell me as a kid all the time, don't don't sweat the small stuff, and yeah. it's all small stuff. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Control what you can control. So you're not just a politician. You're you're a father. You're a husband. Um, I'm oh, sure yeah. you. I'm sure you watch television. I'm sure you um, watch movies. Those sorts of things. Like when you're not like campaigning like crazy like what are you watching right now on like netflix or hulu or on tv like what's your what's your go-to right now i I don't really have (laughs) i don't really have one so i I will say this i i I do have a wonderful wife aisha of um next year it'll be 13 years um we've got three beautiful kids um 11 uh seven and four and um I, i love playing with my kids uh basketball mario kart um, Scrabble, you name it. You know, we're, we're we're always always just you know having fun. My my four year old, she's at a point now where she's playing pranks. It's the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> just, I love it. 
Um, so we spend a lot of time with the kids. Um, I run. I'm a marathoner, and so oh, nice. so I love running. It, it clears your head, it clears, clears your mind, just lets you kind of focus and isolate yourself and center yourself. Um, I actually don't really watch much TV. I, I, I did watch one show recently, uh, Woke, on Hulu, which oh, yeah. um, my, my childhood friend, uh, Lamorne Morris, is a star of it. And um, so I wanted to watch it, and I, I loved it. So I, I highly recommend it. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, but, you know, if there's a good movie out, uh, obviously nowadays due to the pandemic, there isn't really much in theaters, but if there's a good movie out, I will definitely go check out a movie. I think my son and I have watched the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe nice. uh, and spent a lot more money on there than we probably should have, but it was <laughs> worth it. Um, you know, love sci-fi, love Star Wars, Star Trek, all that good stuff. It's, I'm a huge fan. Okay, so we'll, we'll kind of dovetail into that for just a second, Ben. Uh, you got to choose one. Which is your go-to, Star Wars or Star Trek? See, here's why it's a difficult question. <laughs> because it's, it's a different kind of emotional attachment to each one, right? Because cause Star Trek, you had, you know, The Next Generation, you had Voyager, you have different, you know, series and, and just like, iconic episodes, right? Um, and, and different villains, so to speak, right? Um, Star Wars is, you know, so Star Trek is more like, this is Earth in a few centuries, right? Star Trek is, or Star Wars, the whole premise is in a galaxy, a long time ago, a galaxy far, far away, right? So it's, it's in my view, much more of a fantasy realm. Um, and, and Star Trek is, is more like, this is what we can hope to achieve in the future. And, and I've actually, over the years, developed friend, friendships with, like, Will Wheaton. Who, who plays, you know, Wesley Crusher. Yeah, I met, I met him. I was in Disney World, and we were both getting on uh, the Slinky Dog roller coaster in the Toy Story Land. And uh, I saw him standing in line, and I was like, is that Will Wheaton? Nah, that can't be Will Wheaton. And I look on his Instagram, I was like, holy crap, it is Will Wheaton. Yeah, and then, like, yeah, I, I went up to him. I was like, are you Will Wheaton? He's like, yeah. I was like, I'm so sorry to bother you. Is there any way I can get a picture? I've been a huge fan. Like, because yeah. he, he was a kid when I was watching Star Trek The Next Generation. I was like, exactly. that's a kid that I can look up to. Yeah. Exactly it. Exactly yeah. It. Him and his wife, Anne, are just the most wonderful people you'll ever meet in your entire life. They, they come into town every now and then we'll grab dinner. And uh, they're just really, really good people. And so, like, I've got that emotional attachment to awesome. them as well. But that said, Mark Hamill did like a couple of my tweets on Twitter. So, <laughs> you know, who's to say, right? You've so, got you've got all sorts of nerd street cred, Cosm. Um, I do, I do, I, I love it, I love it. So I, I, also, I, I, I love them both. I, I can't pick one. I'm sorry. <laughs> honestly, that's okay because that was the that was the secret correct answer is that they're different and you can love them. You just like I don't know if you were gunning for it or not, but you now have the nerd vote as well. So, so you're it. good. I need that. I need that nerd vote. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when it comes, since you're since you're in this area, you you're you're living in this this region of Virginia. I wanted to ask you too, like, what are some of your favorite restaurants to to go to? Um, what like what are your some of your favorite places to to dine when you're in the Fredericksburg area? You know, um, uh, so let me start with the coffee shop. There's a coffee shop in Stafford um, called uh, the Grounds Coffee. Yeah, and it was started by a local woman who just loves coffee and it's it's outstanding like i i love this place i even bought their uh, grounds coffee swag and i wear their, their shirt around when i go because i love their coffee so much nice. um so, so that's some really good stuff there's uh juan Mortaco in fredericksburg that uh, yes I, I really enjoy um yeah. and then uh and then there's also uh another coffee spot um i think it's uh algora coffee or agora coffee agora coffee uh which is really good um, you know, I, I, I'm super simple when it comes to food. So I wish I had like a whole list of like, these are the 11 restaurants that I absolutely love. <laughs> but for me, I'm just like, Hey man, as long as it's edible and it tastes good, I'll eat it wherever it is. So that's, that's pretty much me too. Like I'm not, I'm not super picky. So yeah, I'm just looking at, so it sounds like you're a big coffee person. It, what's your, what's your go-to order when it comes to coffee, when you go to a coffee house? Um, I, it's, I'm, I, I should say that I drink coffee not because I need the caffeine, but just because it's something to do. Um, I feel it's, like I'm it's more a social thing. Yeah, like I feel like I'm more sophisticated if I'm drinking coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, I I waver between a caramel latte, um, uh, but it's got to be done right. Like it can't be super sweet because then it, it kind of takes away from it. But it, it can't be so dull that you can't really taste the caramel either. So it's got to be the right balance of it. Um, and, um, and the grounds has uh, a white chocolate mocha with uh, a dash of, uh, blueberry that is just, it's, it's outstanding. It's to die for. 
Wow, that no, that does that does sound pretty killer. Is there because of COVID nineteen, because of of the pandemic, has there been anything that like once this is done, once we can try to get back to some sort of semblance of normalcy? Is there anything that you're just like itching to do? You're like, oh, I gotta do this, man, because I miss this so much. You know, I love traveling. I am a travel junkie. I've, I've traveled to some of the most beautiful parts of the world. I don't. I never got into buying, you know, expensive clothes or or, or super expensive cars or things like that. I just I've always, you know, my wife and I as well. We just love traveling and traveled to Thailand and South Africa and, and Mali and Mexico and you know UK and and all the, all these places that we just love kind of seeing the world. And uh, we have family all over the world. And um, and you know this pandemic has really literally grounded us. And so once, uh, God willing, this thing passes, um, we would love to go see family that we haven't seen in a long time now. Uh, you know, I haven't, haven't been able to see my folks in about a year now uh, because of this pandemic. So, so that's what I'm just dying to do, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. You, you mentioned that uh, you and your son share a love for the MCU. Yes. Do you have a favorite movie? Um. Yes, I think there's a lot of really good ones uh, that I can watch on repeat, but I think um, uh, Infinity Wars is probably my, my favorite one. Yeah, it's hard not to go with Infinity War. There's just so much going on, and it's so epic. Okay. Yeah. Oh, good. I, I was. I, I. I mean, I thought Endgame was was really good. My, I had I had two disappointments with Endgame. Um, one at the end of Infinity War. Like the whole reason why you have hope that we might be okay is because they call Captain Marvel, right? And you're like, all right, Captain Marvel's gonna come and she's gonna gonna shift the balance of power back to the side of the Avengers, and it's gonna be okay. But then in Endgame, she plays like almost no meaningful role whatsoever, right? Like she just kind of shows up at the very end, and that's about it. And I was a little bit disappointed because I thought that that would be, you know, kind of the main, you know, fighting scene or sequence or whatnot. And so that part I was a little bit disappointed in. Um, and then and then the second part of it that I thought was um, uh, a, a little bit, um, I, don't know, uh, I don't know, frustrating is the right word or not, was I really wanted that, and this is probably a more like really nerding it out. I, I really wanted them to try to solve the issue or address the issue without having to resort to time travel. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah. and and honestly, nerding out, you're in the right place. You're good. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> I feel like that's just the go-to for every every major movie, right? Like, oh, we'll just do time travel, and it's like, well, okay, then you already have the time stone, so why do you have to go through all this thing anyway, right? And I'm sure there's even a nerdier answer to like prove me wrong, and I would love to hear it too, because I love this stuff. But I I feel like that was just kind of a I don't want to call it a cop out because it was still a really really good movie, but. Um, but uh, I, I, I was hoping for a, a, a different type of, of battle with Captain Marvel as opposed to, uh, you know, going back in time philosophy. Yeah, no, I, I hear you for sure on that one. And it's like the, to, to dovetail and, and nerd out for just a second. I honestly thought they were going to go in a different direction. So one of the um, uh, so Reed Richards and Sue Storm of the Fantastic Four, they have a son. His name is Franklin Richards. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with him. But he literally has the ability to create pocket universes. Mm -hmm. And at one point he did that, and essentially all the Marvel characters were kind of shoved there to protect them from this, like, universe-ending event. And I thought that there was going to be something like that, where it was like all of the characters who were snapped out of existence were actually in this one place and that they, they could somehow access that pocket universe. They could pull them out. But, yeah, I mean – Nobody really knew exactly what was going to happen. I mean, there was all that speculation that Ant-Man was going to shrink down in size and, well, we're not going to go into that, but he was going to find a way into Thanos and then grow to big size and explode him. So, yeah, that's nobody... what I heard as well. And, <laughs> and even that, right? Like, it was because a rat reactivated the um, the the, uh, the quantum machine that allowed him to come back to life. And it's like, really, the fate of the universe depends on a rat randomly pressing a button? Like, come on. <laughs> I, see, I thought that was kind of cool, though, that, like, all of this hinged on this this very, like, unique set of circumstances. Yeah, yeah like, yeah. It, it's – it's that's how 
thin the margin was is that yeah. like if it wasn't for this one thing that butterfly effect sort of thing like if it yeah, wasn't for this one fair. thing then none of it happens yeah yeah that's fair i'll give you that i'll give you that but uh, there are a lot of really good ones though in the series i mean obviously the original iron man was well and it was funny I, I tell my son that he actually went to see the original iron man because even though it was in 2008 and he wasn't born yet um we were expecting, and, and my wife was expecting when we watched the original Iron Man. So he, he like, bragged to his friends that, you know, I got to see the original Iron Man in, the, in theaters. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Do, do you have a favorite superhero? Like, even before the MCU, like, when, when you were growing up, like, did you have one that you really identified with or any oh, that, like, really spoke Wolverine. to you? I, I loved Logan. Wolverine, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, and I've seen all the Wolverine movies as well, every single one of them. Um, but, yeah, Wolverine, and, and I think it was because uh you know he had the tough guy attitude but had a soft spot um he uh i think what sold it for me were the adamantium skeleton and the super healing powers i thought that was just the, the most brilliant thing in the world that you're indestructible and that um and that you so and then there was just so much i mean the the, the animated series for x-men was just incredible right um there were just one after the other were just brilliant so yeah x-men is who i really just kind of adored growing up uh, so a Wolverine of X-Men is why I adored growing up. Yeah. Well, and I think, uh, yeah, I mean, because I think we're about the same age. And uh, that 90s X-Men cartoon was 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 killer. That was, that was I think that was the one that kind of brought everybody onto, uh, onto the X-Men for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, that was so good. And then, of course, you know, um, the Batman, the animated series was so good, too. So well done. Right? Yeah. Like, when I mean, like, oh, how do I get into Batman? Watch the animated series because it's yeah. it's like it's it's perfect. It's, yeah. it, that is that is Batman in my opinion. You know, I'm waiting for them to make a Batman Beyond uh, uh, movie. Like, there's so much potential there. There was a lot of conversation about that. At, at one point, they were talking about uh, Michael Keaton being the older Batman, oh, um, being oh. being Bruce Wayne, and then having somebody else come in as Terry. Uh, but that I don't think that's going to happen now because I don't know if you're following this or not. But with the Flash movie that they're doing with Ezra Miller. Uh, yeah. They're bringing Michael Keaton back as Batman. They're going to do Flashpoint, where he's going to be Batman in a different dimension, and it's going to be insane. I'm so excited about it. Well, I guess you could always wait another, you know, 15 years and do Christian Bale as the as the older Batman as well. Yeah. That would work too. Or I mean, they did it in the uh, in the Flash TV series on CW. They could always have Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman, be Bruce Wayne. He they did that in the uh, in the uh, the um, uh, Crisis of Infinite Earths uh, miniseries. Mm. He he played an yeah. old Batman, and it was it worked out really well. I thought. Yeah, that's yeah. It's a, I, I love these conversations. I, I wish we'd have just been talking about this the whole time. To be honest with you. <laughs> well, you know, see, that's the great thing about this, Cosm, is you are more than welcome to come on and talk about this again. Like yeah. I, we would, I would love to have you on, and we could just talk nerd stuff because that's that's the thing that I think gets lost in a lot of this too is that like politicians are just people, and that's what attracted me to this conversation with you is I knew that you were just a guy, you're just a guy. And it's not this like elitism that so often happens where politicians seem inaccessible and you can't talk to them because they don't understand what it's like to, to live a normal life. But I feel like you do. I mean, you, the fact that your brother uh, is a Marine speaks to me cause I'm a, I'm a veteran myself. And like, you understand these, these things that regular people have to deal with. And well, no, man, th I appreciate that. And, you know, thank you for your service. And yeah, I, I look, I can tell you, you know, we, I'm an immigrant to this country. I'm grateful for the incredible blessings of this nation. And, you know, we, I didn't talk about this earlier, but we, we struggled growing up. You know, I remember living in Section 8 housing, uh, needing food stamps to get by. I've been working since I was 15 years old. So I, I get it. I, I know what it's like to have to figure out, um, you know, am I gonna am I gonna pay the electric bill or the water bill? And trying to figure out, you know, who which system you can, you know, delay to to make sure that another one gets shut off. And so for me, running for office has very little to do with personal glory. If I if I wanted to to get personal glory and and money, I I, I would have stuck in corporate law and been partner somewhere right now and not have to worry about my paycheck ever again. But for me, this is really about how do we create. Um, equal access and equal justice for every single person in this country and make sure that every single person, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, um, no matter their, their circumstances, um, is able to achieve that American dream in the most sincerest and truest and sustainable sense possible. And, uh, and that's going to be my, my North Star in everything I do. I think that's a, a perfect point to, to kind of wrap this up is to wrap it up on hope. But I love I love the message of the North Star. Like this is this is the thing that I can always turn to that will always 
right the ship, so to speak, and always point me in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. So let's do this. Let me give you a chance to plug um, so all, all the people know how to get in touch with you or how to see all of the things that you stand for. Um, take take the time. The mic is yours, uh, Mr. Rashid. Feel free to tell everybody where they can find your stuff. Very easy to find on, on, on social media. Just my Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at uh, Qasim Rashid, Q-A-S-I-M-R-A-S-H-I-D. Uh, our website is you know kasimrashid.com. And um, um, uh, just you can go on there, shoot us an email, uh, shoot us a text, a DM, and we'll follow up. The, the two big uh, asks we have of folks now is to volunteer with our campaign. Um, and you can volunteer from the comfort of your own home. We provide the training and, and uh, everything you would need to, to make calls or texts and just kind of get you adjusted. And for those who have capacity um, to contribute, you know, we don't take any corporate money. I'm excited about the fact that we've had more donors to our campaign this year alone than my opponent has had to his 13 years in office combined. Um, that's the power of a people-powered campaign. So, um, But at the end of the day, please vote. Just make sure you vote. Make sure you, you your family votes in Virginia. You can vote now. You can go to your local registrar's office and vote right now. Just bring your driver's license. Uh, if you've already asked for your uh, mail-in ballot, take your mail-in ballot with you and vote. And, um, and let's really uh, fight for our democracy, fight for equal justice, fight with compassion. Uh, and not only win on November 3rd, but get to work on November 4th to ensure that every person is truly able to achieve that uh, promise of equal justice in our Constitution. All right, fantastic. Guys, again, this is Qasem Rashid. Make sure you check him out uh, on all of the various social media platforms. Uh, but for all of us here at the Great Geek Refuge, again, my name is Mike on the Mic. This has been, <laughs> this is an episode of Mike on the Mic. My name is Mike Lunsford. I can't even remember my own podcast. That's ridiculous. But guys, stay safe. Make sure you're wearing your mask. Make sure you're socially distant. Try to stay as nice as you possibly can. But above all else, guys, don't be a juice bag. Thank you for listening to GGR Pirate Radio. Make sure you check out our website, greatgeekrefuge.com, for all of our awesome articles and wonderful podcasts. This has been Pirate Radio Network Production Juice Bags. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy!